Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science inside podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome um, to our show. I'm really, really excited to chat to you today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, now, you are a distinguished professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Did I get that right? That's correct. Do you mind? You've done a lot in your career. Do you mind telling us about all of the many things that you do and your research interests? <laughs> Um, wow. Well, I, I have done a, a lot of different things. I, I started off studying memory, eyewitness memory, uh, with um, a woman named Elizabeth Loftus, who's one of the world-renowned experts on eyewitness memory. And uh, in graduate school, uh, as part of my PhD, I uh, discovered a phenomenon known as, which we came to call verbal overshadowing, which is the finding that when you attempt to describe a nonverbal experience, such as the appearance of a bank robber, uh, that that can actually interfere with your later ability to uh, recognize that individual. So the act of translating your nonverbal facial memory into words can actually disrupt the memory. And that led me into a path of looking at all the different things that were susceptible to verbal overshadowing. We found that um, the taste is vulnerable to verbal overshadowing and that forms. We found that it's related to expertise. So wine experts are okay describing wines, but people who have a, a palate for wine, but don't know how to talk about it when they attempt to describe the wine that can actually interfere with their later ability to recognize it. And this got me very interested in the nature of consciousness more generally and, and the relationship between language and consciousness. And a one area of research that I became especially interested in was mind wandering, which is the way in which uh, our minds have this internal dialogue that can routinely leave the current situation and jabber on about topics completely unrelated to what we're uh, currently doing, such as when you're reading and you suddenly realize that you're no longer paying attention to what you're reading. Your eyes are moving across the page, but your mind is entirely elsewhere. Did a, a, a fair bit of research on, on mind wandering and all the disruptive things that it can cause. Uh, and then we tried to look into how can we solve this challenge of mind wandering where our minds are constantly drifting. And that led into a long line of research on mindfulness and the value of cultivating mindfulness for um, uh, helping to keep your mind wandering in check. But we also wondered about perhaps there is a value to mind wandering and started to look at some of the upsides. If, if mind wandering is so problematic, why do we do it so often? And it turns out that it has a, a fair bit of value, particularly for creativity. And that's led to a lot of research on the relationship between mind wandering and creativity. And uh, <clears throat> along the way, I've also studied a number of other things. I've looked at curiosity and the relationship between curiosity and, and creativity and 
and how to cultivate curiosity. I've been interested in uh, controversial questions such as whether or not um, individuals can recover long forgotten memories of sexual abuse. I've been in interested in more esoteric questions such as whether or not there's evidence for parapsychological phenomena and whether uh, the, the simple act of conducting multiple experiments might lead to changes in the um, effect size of experiments, something known as the decline effect, and uh, a variety of other uh, topics. I, I kind of like to investigate things that pique my interest that are counterintuitive and that uh, I think might deserve more careful scrutiny. Yeah, absolutely. That That sounds very cool. And it sounds like I mean, you work with such a wide range of topics, but it seems like they're all interconnected the way that you described it. Well, um, I think they are inter I think they're interconnected in some sort of abstract ways. I like to sort of look at things that are counterintuitive, where there's there's something surprising. I like to um, uh, push the frontier. So when we first started started studying mind wandering, it was largely ignored by most of the field uh, because it seems so difficult to track and we figured out ways to assess it rigorously. Uh, so I like to sort of take challenging topics and find ways of investigating them in a way that makes them more tractable and, and hopefully encourages my colleagues to investigate them as well. And, and I have to admit that, you know, uh, I come by mind wandering uh, quite naturally and you can sort of see there's a, there's a wandering quality to my to my research as well. And so uh, to some degree, research is me search. Uh, I've been mind wandering since I was uh, a small kid. My first grade report card uh, by uh, Mrs. Short starts, when I think of Jonathan, I imagine him at the end of the line, five feet behind everybody else, shoes untied, totally preoccupied, and yet completely content. Uh, so that sort of captures um, I've been an absent-minded professor long before I was a professor. I, I love that. I love the term me search as well. I'm definitely going to call my next kind of Wikipedia rabbit hole <laughs> me search <laughs> next time. <laughs> Although I'm sure your um, time in me search is, is much more productive than mine. Um, we are going to talk about memory, um, honing in on memory for this episode, specifically the aging brain and memory loss. Before we get into all that, um, we have a segment here called Have You Met Jonathan Schooler? where um, I ask you a couple of really quick questions and uh, all you have to do is give me the first answer that comes to your head. Are you ready for those? Sure. Fantastic. What is your favorite book? Uh, sorry, I need to I repeat that one more time. <laughs> what is your favorite book? Oh, my favorite book, I would say, is Alan Watts, the book on the taboo against knowing who you are. Okay. And it's what I like about it is it's a very simple book that gives some very sort of deep insights into the way to think about our identity and our relationship with the rest of the world. And I read it when I was 16. It introduced me to Eastern uh, religion. And it, uh, it really got me thinking uh, in deep ways that uh, I, that continue to this day. Yeah, absolutely. Another one to add to the book list um, for this year. Uh, what about a favorite movie or maybe the last movie that you watched? <clears throat> um, let's see. Well, the last movie I watched was 
uh, I think it was called Bros. Um, and it was actually a uh, exploration of um, a gay couple. And it was, uh, it was actually, I think, the first um, movie that I uh, had watched that was so intimately focused on um, a, a gay uh, experience. And I found it, uh, it, was, it was really, I'll admit, it was a little challenging, some of the, the physicality of it. Um, but it's, I found it was really an opportunity to uh, broaden my perspective. And it was, it was, it was really quite funny and brilliantly active. Yeah, I haven't seen Bros yet. Um, I did mean to catch it in theaters when it came out, but it is on my list of things that I would like to watch, at least in the future. Um, what's a podcast that you've been really into lately? Um, Lex. Uh, shoot, I'm blanking on Lex's last uh, name. He interviews physicists and um, uh, uh, and he's a, he's a deep thinker. Uh, and I apologize for not being able to get Lex, Lex's last name, but I've been, I've been quite enjoying it. I'm sure if people type in those keywords into Google, they'll find it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not impossible. Um, what is a famous role model that you have looked up to? William James. William James was a, a American psychologist and philosopher, a absolutely brilliant mind who just through uh, reading the literature carefully and his own introspections, he did a little bit of research, but it was mostly just synthesizing the understanding of the time, uh, just generated a, a really uh, profound understanding of the mind and consciousness. Uh, and a large proportion of consciousness papers to this day start with a quote by William James, and he just is so so on point, so articulate, so poetic uh, in his uh, characterization of uh, psychological experiences. He was the uh, brother of William James, the, um, sorry, Henry James, the, uh, uh, the novelist. Uh, so his, his, his writing uh, is understandable. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, stuff like that, it's lucky when it runs in the family. Um, mm. What is the last course that you completed? You mean that I took or that I taught? That you took, but also that you taught, if you if you have one. Well, the last course that I taught was uh, mindfulness. The last course that I completed was probably... Uh, a driver's ed refresh when I had when I came to California and had to take my driver's test again and wanted to make sure I got it right. Are you not from California? Not from California originally. No, I'm from uh, Washington D.C. originally. Right, right, right. Yep. Okay. Driver's ed, driver's ed. That's a useful one at the very, at the very least. You got to learn how to drive when you're in the Absolutely. Uh, that brings us to the end uh, of our segment. Um, our audience now knows you, <laughs> and now we can move on uh, to our topic of um, the episode, which is memory. I guess our podcast is about personal development, self-improvement. To start very broadly, what is your definition of personal development? Well, uh, I think I'm actually the director of the center 
for mindfulness and human potential here at UCSB. And so I'm, I am very dedicated to uh, personal uh, development. And I think that personal development really revolves around identifying your goals and aspirations, thinking about what are things that might be impediments to those goals and aspirations and what things that might help to facilitate those goals and aspirations, and then uh, engaging in uh, various different approaches to help to correct challenges that may be slowing you down and to identify strengths that you can cultivate. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you you got to do the work once you once you figure out what the issues are. What are the challenges um, that you feel people face uh, when trying to develop themselves? I mean, there's there's so many challenges that 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 people face. You know, one thing is just finding the 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 time and the the motivation and the the dedication uh, to doing it. You know, you can you can make resolutions, you can have all sorts of ambitions, but if you can't find the time to actually uh, put in, th there are going to be limits. Uh, for example, uh, research on meditation uh, shows that it's uh, tremendously helpful in all sorts of uh, different ways in terms of facilitating well-being, uh, in terms of uh, uh adding focus, reducing mind wandering, which as I mentioned is a, is a big interest of mine. Um, but you have, to, you have to find the time to meditate. You have to figure out what you're gonna do, you would have done otherwise that you're not gonna do in order to, uh, to meditate. So finding the time is I think a, uh, a big commitment and then finding the, um, the, the commitment. The bright side, is that we are creatures of habit. And if we can create habits, if we can build in routines, it gets easier and easier and easier. So if you, you know, if you decide after I get up before breakfast or whatever your time is, I'm going to meditate and you do that for a period of time, it becomes easier and easier. You decide to exercise at the same time every day or at a particular certain days a week or find a, a buddy who you're going to do these things with. When you build in these routines, that really allows you to um, automatize the, uh, the practice, and that can really make a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like time is something that, especially, you know, post-pandemic work-life balance has blended together for, it's not quite the same as it used to be before the pandemic, um, when you're working from home. And I feel like finding that time has gotten so much harder for a lot of people now because they're working at hours that maybe they probably wouldn't have before, even though they technically have more time because they're not really traveling to work. Yeah, but there, you, it's also a matter of priorities. Uh, maybe spending a little bit less time on social media uh, uh, or um, limiting the number of uh, television shows that you're going to watch. So figuring out where your time is going and then figuring out how to redistribute it to be able to engage in the activities that you uh, think are most important. Oftentimes, if you ask people, 
what do you find most rewarding? And then ask them what they do. There's a big disconnect. You know, they, they find exercise more rewarding, but they spending more time watching uh, Netflix. Uh, so trying to synchronize uh, one's priorities uh, with the actual way they're spending time is quite important. Yeah, absolutely. Some really, really good advice um, on that respect. How, kind of going into memory, how do you define memory officially? <laughs> what is it? Well, memory, there, there are all sorts of different types of memory, and this is really uh, important to recognize. And indeed, we can access memories and not even realize that we're accessing them. This is known as, as implicit memory. But but memory could be most generally defined as the influence of past experiences So anything, uh, in, any uh, influence of past experience that is of a mental nature. So, uh, I mean, I suppose if you um, injured your leg and were limping, uh, that wouldn't constitute uh, a memory. But any experience that is, um, that is uh, impacting your current experience, um, that would generally be constitute a memory. And we can have different kinds of memories. We can have, as I mentioned, implicit memories where you, for example, if I just read about Petunia yesterday and you asked me to name a flower, I might be more likely to mention Petunia, even if I don't remember having seen it yesterday. Indeed, individuals with amnesia, you can expose them to a word and they will uh, later use that word, even though they have no recollection of having encountered it before. There's episodic memory, which involves your memory for uh, personal uh, experiences that are located in, in time and space. So you'll have an episodic memory of our uh, conversation today. And there's semantic memory, which is our general knowledge of the world. And uh, sometimes you can have an episodic memory. So for example, you might learn some uh, thing about memory right now, uh, and then later on, that will become part of your semantic memory, your general knowledge about it. But you may or may not remember where you learned that um, particular piece of information. So semantic memory involves all of our language and grammar and everything we know uh, about um, the world. Then there's procedural memory, which is uh, memory for uh, skills. Uh, riding a bike is a classic example of a procedural memory but as is typing, uh, but you can have procedural memory for other things that aren't necessarily motor. Uh, doing, when you do uh, solve mathematical problems, you develop procedural memory for, for how to do that. So there's really a host of different kinds of memories. One other memory that's kind of a class of episodic memory is known as autobiographical memory, which is your memory for your personal uh, lifetime uh, experiences. And oftentimes is characterized as a narrative uh, where you have uh, particular episodes and they are situated into larger periods. Mm -hmm. A question, I guess this is a bit specific, but uh, on semantic memory, is that is that only, I'm assuming a lot of that develops when you're very young, but it, does that continue throughout your life? Do you continue to? It does actually. Semantic memory can continue to grow um, throughout one's entire life. Uh, you, you could be 95 and still gain uh, more 
semantic memory. It's, it's actually a kind of memory that is uh, relatively resistant to cognitive decline. People can have challenges with semantic memory in the sense that they may struggle uh, to, to find a word, but typically that's just a brief situation and the word comes to mind. So yeah, one of the really nice things about uh, memory over time is the way in which we can continue to gain new knowledge uh, and gain uh, more vocabulary and a deeper understandings of things and, and still maintain the material that we learned in the past. Mm-hmm. Right. So I guess memory loss, what, what is it? How does it happen? Does it affect yeah. only specific kinds of memory or does it affect them more? Like, t- tell us, tell us everything. Let's deep dive into that. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's a big topic. And let me, let me start by uh, just saying uh, a, a few things that I think are, uh, are really important to, to keep in mind. And that is that memory loss can be very severe for those individuals who uh, ultimately uh, get uh, Alzheimer's or other forms of, of dementia. And in that situation, it can really be uh, problematic. But the majority of people will not get uh, Alzheimer's, and they will just experience much more modest uh, cognitive uh, decline of certain kinds of, of memories. And what tends to be found is that there are workarounds uh, for this. And uh, one way to think about it is that we remember the important stuff. And as we get older, we become more and more strategic in uh, holding on to the most most important material, to recognizing what we need to remember and being able to remember that material. So uh, we were talking already about semantic memory, and that tends to be uh, quite intact. So we hold on to our knowledge, we hold on to our vocabulary, we are continuously able to learn uh, new information. Episodic memory uh, does decline uh, to some degree. So as people get older, uh, they may have a harder time remembering unimportant events, things that really didn't seem that significant. And you can see here, well, this is kind of strategic. They're not remembering this relatively minuscule thing because it didn't really matter that much. The significant things people really uh, tend to hold on to. Uh, there's a, a difference between recognition, where you are presented with information, and recall. Recall shows more of a deficit with age than a recognition does, which can be quite good. I mentioned before implicit memory, and this is the uh, way in which we are influenced by uh, experiences that we may not even uh, remember having. Implicit memory actually shows hardly any decline at all. So um, you do see uh, with uh, healthy aging some uh, reductions in certain kinds of memories, but for the most part, they're relatively modest and they're sort of small inconveniences as opposed to something really serious. If you start forgetting the name of your children or, or become completely disoriented uh, uh, in a neighborhood where you're used to be familiar, that's a time for concern. But uh, really for, for most of us, our memories are going to show uh, 
the most graceful of uh, declines. Right, right. Now, you mentioned earlier that I, I guess our brain has a tendency to retain the most important information and, and, and kind of prioritize that. This this might open a can of worms, but for, I guess, stuff like, you know, ADHD, where sometimes you're retaining memories or facts or information that, and hyper-focusing on information that's perhaps not as important, at least in your, in the scheme of things. How, how does that work? Is, is your brain just, is the prioritization just different or is it all the same? It's just that, I don't know. I, I think you kind of understand what I'm getting at. Yeah, sure. So uh, ADHD uh, involves uh, attentional regulation issues. And typically what happens is if someone is very interested with ADHD, they can stay focused uh, really quite well. My son was diagnosed with ADHD, and it took us a long time to notice it because, well, he could stay focused on video games for a really long time. So this kid doesn't have any problem with, uh, you know, attention. Look how focused he is. He was focused because he was very engaged with um, the video game. He found that really meaningful and valuable. The challenge with ADHD is if you're if if you don't find it that interesting, you have a hard time holding attention on those things that you don't think are meaningful. Um, so uh, really, people with ADHD are going to do okay with the things that they find really meaningful. They just have a low tolerance for things they find boring. So really, a key thing for ADHD is to cultivate curiosity in the things you want to pay attention to. So if you're studying, then what you really need to do is to think about what makes this interesting? Why do I care about this? Think about questions that can cultivate your curiosity, that can get your mind to go, oh, hey, I care about this, and then you can pay more attention to it. Another um, important thing about ADHD is that um, you can cultivate focus with practice. So, for example, meditation can be very helpful. Uh, people with ADHD sometimes shy away from meditation because they find it so challenging, but it really is a opportunity to practice controlling your attention, noticing when your mind has drifted away from uh, the situation at hand and bringing it back. We did a study um, looking at experience sampling where we uh, both uh, we pinged people during the day and asked them if they were paying attention uh, or were they paying attention to what they were doing or were they thinking about something else? And we did find that people with ADHD tend to, um, to mind wander more. But we also found that those people who notice their mind wandering, something we call meta-awareness, that those people were able to find the mind wandering less problematic. So by cultivating our awareness of our mind wandering, cultivating our awareness of our distraction, people with ADHD uh, can learn to uh, remain more focused and hold on better to the material that they would want to. Because in order to remember material, you have to pay enough attention to it for it to sink in. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way of putting putting it is that it is connecting, I guess, attention 
to memory and it's almost that conscious it's a conscious act essentially to to retain it sometimes it, it is um it, or it, it, it certainly can be now uh, again if something is really exciting if you are having a fascinating conversation or uh, you know watching a, a movie that you're really uh, captivated by your mind will just naturally uh, hold hold on to the material because we remember what we think is uh, interesting and, and significant. But if you're struggling, uh, then uh, finding ways, conscious ways of thinking about the angle that would make this more interesting, more captivating for your mind will help you remember it better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, I guess that's memory retention in a way. What, how, back to memory loss, how does that relate to um, the aging brain? Sorry, could you repeat the question? How does memory loss uh, relate to the aging brain? Well, so the, the as I mentioned before, one thing that's really um, helpful about the way that our minds are wired is that much of our autobiographical memories, particularly from uh, earlier on in life, our, our early adulthood, if, if, if we're um, older, we hold those memories uh, quite well. So we, we tend to have very strongly intact autobiographical memories for many of our most uh, important experiences, and, and we are able to hold on to those uh, our entire lives. The, the place in which memory loss impacts the uh, aging brain more is in more recent experiences. Um, remembering uh, a conversation uh, that maybe was not that meaningful uh, or uh, remembering a, uh, a, a something on your shopping list, that type of thing. Um, the, the relatively sort of insignificant day-to-day -day experiences uh, that, that we have as we get older, those are going to be harder to hold on to. Another example is arbitrary associations. If you give uh, younger adults arbitrary associations that just aren't very meaningful, they can hold on to those uh, very well, as well as they can hold on to meaningful associations. As we get older, we remember the meaningful associations, but we have a harder time remembering arbitrary associations. And you can kind of see this as it gets back to this point of the strategic quality of memory. The mind goes, what's the point of holding on to that arbitrary association? It doesn't seem meaningful to me. And so the brain doesn't, um, doesn't connect it as, as readily. It, it saves the connection for the more meaningful material. So again, it comes back to this idea of being uh, conscious about the things that are meaningful and significant. And just through recognizing the meaningfulness of it, one engages in what's known as greater depth of processing. And that uh, allows a memory to be retained even uh, in one's much later years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that brings me to, I guess, my next question, which is, can we prevent memory loss? Is that possible? Yes, absolutely. There are all sorts of things uh, that one can do to help to maintain uh, the greatest cognitive abilities throughout their lives, and in particular, to sustain their memory ability. Uh, I'm, 
I'm laughing inside right now a little bit because I'm imagining uh, some of my friends, because uh, I, 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 my memory, as I mentioned at the beginning, research is me research, and, and I'm not uh, renowned uh, for my memory. Indeed, I may be renowned for being uh, forgetful, um, but I, I've been doing that my whole life. Back, you know, in Mrs. Shark's first grade class when I was mind wandering, I was also uh, forgetting uh, significant things in the lesson. So with that a bit of self-disclosure, um, the important thing for maintaining memory is to maintain an active mind. Um, and there are lots of different ways to maintain a, an active mind. One of the best things is social interactions. Social interactions, you know, uh, they require a lot of, you have to keep track of people's stories, and uh, but they're also very engaging. Uh, and so there's a lot of research which indicates that when people remain socially engaged, that this can be tremendously helpful for uh, keeping the mind uh, uh, spry. But uh, also uh, engaging in um, meaningful activities. So playing, playing bridge, playing games, um, uh, doing events, I always uh, encourage people to, to stay at, at their uh, jobs as, as, as long as possible. Um, uh, being active, having meaningful career to uh, pursue. And if, if, you've moved, if you have uh, retired, then finding some new pursuit that you're genuinely excited about, where you're learning new material is, uh, is, is, is super helpful. Exercise turns out to be uh, tremendously helpful. Uh, it used to be thought, and you maybe even heard, that we uh, don't grow new nerves, that, that we're born with all the uh, nerves that, um, uh, and they used to believe this. But now we understand that the brain is capable of neurogenesis, of actually growing new nerves. And one part of the brain that seems to be especially um, receptive to neurogenesis is the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain which is really critically associated with uh, memory performance. And they've done studies showing that exercise is very helpful for actually growing new nerves in the hippocampus and so neurogenesis. So exercise can really make a, a difference. Meditation also seems to be very helpful because you're really training your frontal cortex to control attention to, um, and you're also learning how to uh, get rid of stress. Because not only is, uh, does aging uh, contribute to memory difficulties, but, but stress does as well, as does a lack of sleep, as does a poor diet. And so uh, one might think that they're uh, having memory difficulties due to, um, to aging, whereas in fact, if they just were to reduce stress in their life, get more sleep, eat a balanced diet, all those things can make a big difference as well. Yeah, absolutely. When you said that exercise can develop new nerves in the hippocampus, that that's not neurons, that's not brain cells. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, neurons, brain cells, absolutely, yes. Wow, that that's really cool. Because I guess growing up, I I was told in high school that like you can't grow neurons or you can't generate exactly. neurons. Exactly, that's what I was saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you can grow neurons. 
and it's called neurogenesis and exercise helps you to do that. That that's incredible. That is very, that's a very cool. Um, I've learned, I've learned something new today that has blown my mind <laughs> for sure. Um, so I guess that's a great point to kind of jump on to, um, our next segment, which is the practice slash habit experiment debrief. Um, I guess, is there a practice that you yourself, um, take on board or perhaps you have recommended to a friend or someone you worked with, uh, to deal with memory, to deal with memory loss? Well, there's, I have a number of strategies, um, that I have, uh, worked with to deal with, um, my, uh, particular challenges. Uh, I'll, I, I will start with a kind of embarrassing one. Um, but it really does work and it's it's kind of a hack as opposed to uh, an improvement but one of the things that it can be particularly challenging is forgetting people's names and we've all had you know those awkward experiences of uh, greeting somebody and expecting the name to come and then it's, it's not there and feeling awkward and now I'll come to some strategies for helping to remember names in a moment, but let's just say that you've been used, you use the strategy and you've forgotten the name. Well, one strategy that I found that I, that I find to be helpful uh, is if you always use people's names, every time you remember it, then when you go to use someone's name and you don't have it, it becomes very obvious that you've, you've come up short, but if you get into the habit, of using names regularly, but not all the time, so that you become more natural at not using a, a name, then when you forget somebody's name, you can do it in a more natural way. And it, it's less uh, problematic that you've uh, forgotten. Now, obviously, if you're trying to introduce somebody, that it only works you know, to, uh, to some degree. But the practice of uh, not using the names when you know somebody's name so that you can uh, be more natural when you don't, I find to be quite helpful. In terms of um, other strategies, you can, let's say that you are going to a party and uh, you know that there uh, may be the opportunity to have to introduce people or, or forget people's names, to, re to review before the social situation, the likely people who are going to be there, uh, uh, remember the person, you know, you know, your colleague Joe, but what's Joe's wife's name? And then you spend some time ahead of time planning through the names of the different individuals that you're going to be seeing. You can maybe even, you know, pull out Facebook and, uh, you know, review the names or ask your partner uh, individuals uh, names. So preparing for situations where there may be a memory demand and uh, uh, reviewing the, the memory demands in, in advance can be uh, can be quite helpful. If you are experiencing a, a mental block, so you, you know, you know, Joe and you know, you know, his wife, but you can't remember his wife's name, just start free associating all the things you can think about Joe and all the things you can think about, um, uh, uh, her wife, his wife, and thinking about maybe the, the kids they know. And, and what happens is when you start free associating about the, the target that you're trying to access, what can happen is that will lead to spreading activation. And 
which is the idea that the concepts are related to other concepts and activation can spread. And then the, that name may uh, arise. Um, also, there are techniques for learning names in the first place. So when you meet somebody, uh, think of some, this works better with people with uh, familiar names, uh, but think of somebody else who has the same first name and then creates some association between the appearance or the quality of that person and the person whose name you already know. Oftentimes, I will forget a name within, and I know I'm, I'm losing my credibility as a memory expert here, but I will admit that I sometimes will meet somebody and within uh, a minute realize that I've already forgotten their name. And what I find is that people routinely really value your just saying, oh, I'm sorry, can you remind me your name again? Oftentimes they've forgotten my name as well. So there's this thing where we, we feel embarrassed about that, but routinely people are actually quite pleased that you care enough to ask uh, for them to uh, repeat their name. And then the second time, you're not putting as much thought into how firm your handshake is and all the other parts of the introduction. So the second opportunity provides a, a real uh, increased chance of of learning that particular name. There are also um, a, a whole variety of other mnemonic techniques uh, that uh, people can use to uh, remember things. One of the most classic mnemonic techniques is known as the method of loci. This was discovered by a uh, ancient, it was either Greek or Roman, I'm I can't remember, there you go, um, named uh, Simonides. Uh, and as legend goes, Simonides was um, at a, a banquet of some sort and a page called him out. And then uh, uh, for great moment of misfortune, the roof of the banquet hall collapsed, crushing all of the individuals inside and they asked Simonides to identify the individuals, and he was able to go through and imagine each person in different locations in the room. And from that experience, he realized that he could use the location in rooms as a technique for remembering things. And so when he uh, created speeches, he would place uh, different points of the speech in a familiar location in different locations. And so this is uh, a technique that uh, people use uh, to this day, where if you want to remember uh, uh, remember an extensive amount of information, you can create what's known as a memory palace. So you have a location with lots of different objects. Uh, it could be your house even. And then you place objects that you want to remember or points from your speech in the different locations and making some ideally sort of bizarre association between each location and the, um, uh, the thing that you want to remember. And then you just walk through your memory palace. And in each location that you see, you'll see in your mind's eye that um, that location and the, and the object that you put that's to remind you of that particular uh, idea. And this technique has uh, been used uh, widely for people remembering speeches, but also uh, many of the um, great memory experts started off just like you and me, but learned this technique of using the memory palace uh, and are able to remember really just tremendous amounts of information. Yeah, absolutely. I've got 
three things to say to all of that. First of all, you're in luck. I do know who Simonides is. <laughs> I know I've got, I know some things about ancient Greece and he is Greek. So I can Greek, confirm okay. that one. Um, two, uh, you're a memory expert. That doesn't mean you have a good memory. It means you know how memory works. <laughs> so I suppose you can feel better about yourself in that way. Um, <laughs> but three, I guess something I, I want to focus on for this segment, because I'm not as familiar with it personally, is this memory palace um i'd love to deep dive into that if that's okay um because sure. i feel like i i have the same issues as you i don't remember names very well and when you mentioned that you kind of try to guide your conversation so you don't have to mention anyone's name i i was laughing internally because that's something that's something i do as well but you I guess landed on that strategy also huh yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great one it's a great one um but i guess like something like the memory palace if my memory is terrible and stuff like memorizing longer speeches or scripts for example which i do have to sometimes do that's something mm -hmm. i i find quite challenging so i guess for this segment you know, what, what are three good things that you would recommend about the memory palace? Yeah. So, um, uh, one thing is to, uh, make the association as, um, bizarre as, uh, possible. Uh, so, um, let's say that you are trying to make a, a speech that, um, involves, um, how you have to remember that, um, Let's see, we have to come up with a topic. Here. You, you, you're going to give a speech about a individual. Uh, you're, they're, they're leaving the job and uh, you want to talk about some of the things that um, they've done uh, so uh, successfully. And you want to make sure to mention uh, how good they were at uh, baseball and uh, how um, thorough uh, they were at um uh, accounting, uh, and um, also you want to mention that uh, the story about how um, they uh, showed up uh, on the first day in a, a Hawaiian uh, shirt that was everyone got a good chuckle out about. So what you want to do is to let's see. So we've got what you want to do is to create an association with um, these different things in the room. So let's say that we um, are uh, going into the uh, kitchen. And so now we need to do something with the football uh, in the kitchen to um, uh, really uh, make it uh, stand out. So we could uh, put uh, the football um, uh, in the uh sink uh, and have it uh, surrounded by um, uh, by hot dogs. So now we've got the football in the sink uh, surrounded by uh, hot dogs. And that's an image which is going to really uh, uh, jump out at you. Uh, and then we need to uh, remember the uh, accounting. So uh, we take a, a, a calculator uh, and we uh, put the uh, calculator um, on the uh, dining room uh, table and we um, have it uh, um, decorated with um, uh, all sorts of um, 
tin foil. So we've got the tin foil coming off of the um, off of the calculator, uh, and then uh, we uh, move into the um, uh, the pantry, uh, and uh, there is a uh, Hawaiian shirt uh, on uh, just on top of a pineapple uh, in a really uh, silly way. And so now we have these images that are sort of bizarre, uh, and the bizarreness of them, you know, that football with the hot dogs in, in the sink, you know, really jumps out at us. So now when we look at that sink, it, it's going to really be uh, memorable. So by creating these um, bizarre images in this familiar location with the critical target items that uh, we want, uh, we can um, uh, remember all the material. And you can also do this if you have a specified route that you, you know, walk through the thing. So then you can put uh, different things in the different places and have them come up in the right order because, you know, you first go to the sink uh, and then you go to the kitchen table and then you go to the pantry. And so not only do the things arise, but they arise in the right order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I guess when you put it that way, what, what do you, are, you, are there any challenges you imagine people might have um, in kind of engaging with the memory palace? Yeah, well, it's work. You know, this is the thing uh, about, um, we started off when we were talking about development. It, all these things require uh, some degree of effort. You have to really decide you're going to do this. You have to put the thought into what the different associations are going to be. And if you don't do the work, you're not going to get the, uh, the, the benefits. So um, there's, unfortunately, there, there's some things which um, I may offer a little bit of a free lunch. Uh, so for example, if you cultivate always finding the interesting aspect of whatever you're doing, if you're always cultivating curiosity, then you're gonna always be processing whatever you're doing uh, more deeply. And that's going to lead to, um, uh, to better memory. And to some degree, I think, I personally, because I, I find um, that I tend to remember, uh, I remember conversations, I remember, I tend to remember, even though I, I, I am forgetful, there's a lot of stuff that I do remember reasonably well, because it's captured my uh, curiosity. And I think, even though it may require some effort to cultivate curiosity, uh, at the at the end of the day, it's it's life is better when you're more engaged. Life is more interesting when you are um, uh, really finding the angle that you find that makes something uh, intriguing. So uh, that is a, a strategy of cultivating curiosity. That I it still requires work, but it's kind of a really um, pleasant kind of work, I think. Uh, some of these other strategies uh, are harder and, and some people really might enjoy, uh, you know, imagining um, a football surrounded by hot dogs uh, in the sink. So you might find that enjoying, but, but the challenge is you have to do the work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess that tacks on to another question I had, which is, would you recommend this practice to anyone or are there perhaps groups of people that might not find as much worth in it? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. I don't really use the uh, method of uh, loci uh, particularly. I tend to make lists. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a pretty good way to, uh, to remember things uh, as well. And when it comes to uh, speeches, um, I'll try to uh, organize them in a meaningful way uh, where one thought leads naturally to the next, which leads naturally to the next, um, rather than using the uh, method of loci. So for me, uh, I like to connect my uh, memory through creating uh, a narrative, a, a story that really is more directly relatable to whatever it is that I'm going to be uh, talking about as opposed to introducing this uh, somewhat artificial uh, device of, of putting everything uh, in, a, in a room. Um, but if I am not a, a memory expert and uh, that, I mean, I am not uh, a, what is the word that we're uh, using for this? Uh, if you give me a long list of numbers to remember or, you know, a whole set of uh, random words to string together, I'm not going to do very well with that. If you find someone who is really talented at remembering long lists of uh, arbitrary items, almost invariably, you're going to find that they use the memory palace and they're very efficient in, uh, in doing so. Mm, mm, absolutely. Coincidentally, and a little bit off topic, how many numbers of pi do you remember off the top of your head? Three, one, four. Uh, yeah, like three or three or four. Yeah. I think I stop about there as well. <laughs> so yeah, it's not not my strong suit. For, there's there's really a difference. There's um, there's the meaning uh, behind uh, a memory. There's the sort of the gist, the understanding. And then there's the verbatim, the very specific information, um, like the particular digits of pi. And uh, my memory is good for for the meaning. And when I can make a really meaningful association, uh, it tends to stick. But for learning random associations, uh, I've always been quite challenged. Some people are... Um, are really good uh, visual if they can if they can see things that really helps them uh, to remember things. Uh, other people, uh, you know, uh, many people use um, rhymes uh, to uh, to remember things. Um, and uh, but for me uh, and 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 for many people, meaning seems to be the the most powerful uh, way of uh, holding on to information, creating. A, an association that tells a story uh, is, is, is really helpful. And indeed, stories are a very, very powerful uh, device for memory, right? We have been telling stories, uh, uh, you know, long before even writing uh, existed. And uh, the, the story was the way in which... Um, history got passed down for, for, for a very long time. And I really think that our minds naturally hold on to stories. So if you can take what you want to remember and turn it into a story that can really help you to remember it, and it will also help the person you're telling the story for them to 
remember. Mm, mm, yeah, I, I really, I, I wholeheartedly believe that as well. I think the power of narrative um, in memory and in helping us remember things can be so important and sometimes far more useful than, um, I don't know, remembering a series of numbers <laughs> with rhymes, uh, if, if that is what works for some people. But that that brings us to the end of um, our practice slash habit experiment debrief. Uh, we got a couple of questions from our audience. Are you happy to answer them? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Cool. These are very, very interesting questions that I feel like have come very out of left field. Um, I chose my favorite ones out of the ones that were sent in. Um, first question is, does our brain age with our body or are they? do they age differently? Well, um, the answer is sort of yes and no. Um, so... On the one hand, um, each one of us is going to have um, uh, certain parts of our body that are uh, going to uh, be um, particularly uh, uh, strong, and, and other areas that you know may have some weaknesses. Some people have, uh, you know, with aging, they, they experience arthritis in a particular uh, region. Other people, you know, they're going to experience uh, some digestive uh, challenges. And the brain is is similar. So, um, you know, some people uh, may have a perfectly healthy body, but they've uh, developed uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, so you you can get um, a differential aging in different parts of the body. But at the same time, there also are some uh, common denominators uh, that can be uh, very uh, important. So there's uh, telomeres which are um, these uh, characteristics of, um, of cells that can um, reflect the aging uh, process. And uh, some people have got uh, uh, longer telomeres than others, and that's going to be uh, a, a sign of um, a, a more sort of general aging quality. There are other things such as... Uh, Keeping blood pressure uh, in uh, in check. If you have a high blood pressure, uh, that can increase your risk for stroke, but it also can increase, which can lead to uh, problems with the brain, of course. But it can also lead to challenges uh, with uh, you know for the for the heart uh, and and other uh, conditions, uh, uh, diabetes, a whole variety of, of different uh, health issues in 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 general. Um, being uh, excessively uh, overweight uh, can contribute to um, difficulties both with the body uh, and with the brain. So uh, the answer is really uh, both. There are unique aging characteristics associated with the, uh, with the brain and with every different organ and part of the body. And there are some general common denominators that uh, can be helpful across the board. Uh, exercise, for example, very good for the body, very good for the brain. But even there, you, know, you need to find the right exercise. If you're doing uh, some very high impact exercise, that could be good you know, for the heart and for, um, for the brain, but maybe really hard on the knees, right? Uh, so uh, finding the right kind of um, exercise to be able to 
um, maximize the benefits for both brain and body and minimize the cost is important. Mm, I feel like this question probably comes from kind of those like, what's your brain age quizzes and games that kind of often see the brain as a separate entity from the rest of the body. But it, it, it's really just a body part that will age in its own way, the same the rest of your body might age in its own way. Well, but it, they're also going to be, um, you know, so the telomeres is going to make uh, a difference and, and um, exercise is going to help both with the health of the brain and uh, of the body. Uh, and uh, the, the health of the heart is going to make uh, a big, a big difference uh, the diet that one has is going to contribute both to the brain and the body. So um, yes, the brain is just one part and it, it is going to be associated with unique aging characteristics, but there also are going to be some uh, general characteristics of aging that are going to be across brain and body and that through attention uh, can be beneficial to both. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, I guess the next question is, I, this kind of goes back to neurons and neurogenesis that we were talking about, but the opposite almost. Can our brain, can our brain cells die if we hit our heads? Uh, and can this cause memory loss? I chose this question because it made me laugh, uh, but I also don't know the answer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, this is a, uh, this is a real issue in, um, in professional sports right, where uh, when people have uh, multiple concussions, uh, that can cause uh, damage to the, to the neurons uh, in the brain that can lead to, um, to long-term, uh, and in some cases, tragically uh, uh, lethal uh, consequences uh, over time. So uh, now this is not just like, you know, a, a bump, we're talking concussions, um, but concussions can lead to um, serious consequences. And uh, it's also important uh, that uh, concussions that happen uh, soon after each other are particularly problematic. So if someone has a concussion, it's really important to uh, not just say, if you're in sports, if you've had a concussion, taking some time off is a good idea. The brain can, um, can recover and it'll be a little bit less susceptible to a concussion if some time has passed and if you have repeated concussions in a close time proximity to one another. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the answer is yes. And also maybe take a break if you've had a concussion recently. Yeah. Um, the next question is, is it possible to regain memory that we have lost or is prevention the only option? Um, well, the, the brain is, uh, is very plastic. It, uh, what routinely happens, uh, when individuals have suffer, for example, strokes is that through, um, through therapy, through training, through finding new, uh, roots, uh, individuals can, uh, regain, uh, semantic memory. They can regain procedural memory. They can, uh, memory, uh, Oftentimes there can be uh, an amnesia which can can lift. Um, so uh, absolutely, you can regain uh, memory that has been uh, made temporarily inaccessible through 
uh, some kind of uh, uh, trauma um, or uh, injury or uh, and so on. Um, at the same time, you know, sometimes uh, memory loss can be uh, irreversible. And so a uh, prevention, you know, it's, it's, it's better to avoid a traumatic injury uh, than uh, to have one and then have to uh, recover from it. So uh, for sure, a uh, prevention is better. And then there's also the, sort of the related question about um, if, you, if you can't remember something now, is it, is it lost forever? And there's uh, this interesting thing known as hypermnesia, which is when you engage in multiple retrieval attempts, oftentimes on the second retrieval attempt, you'll access material that you couldn't get the first time. So just because you can't remember something on one occasion, it doesn't mean it won't be accessible uh, on the next occasion. And sometimes repeated efforts will uh, bring up uh, additional material that, w that was not available at first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is pretty cool. Um, I guess sometimes we feel like memories once they're lost, at least colloquially or in terms of the way we understand memory in the popular sense, sometimes we feel like once it's lost, it's gone forever. But it, when you put it in the context of things like trauma and amnesia, um, and also hyperamnesia, as you're talking about, it, it's just way more complicated than that. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, memories, um, memories kind of fickle. Uh, so um, you may not have thought about some childhood experience and then you smell a particular thing or you go to a particular location or you see a friend and then all of a sudden, boom, um, this flooding of memories can uh, return. Marcel Proust in his um a classic book, Remembrance of Things Past, talks about how he'd been struggling to get um, childhood memories. And then he had the taste of this um, petite madeleine, this cookie. And all of a sudden, this, this flood of memories that had seemed unavailable to him before uh, came to mind. Smell can be particularly powerful to bring back memories that had otherwise seemed uh, accessible. So just because a memory is not available at one time, in no way uh, precludes the possibility that it might not be available at some later time. Yeah, yeah, that is that is very cool uh, and very comforting almost uh, to know about memory. Uh, that does bring us to the end of the questions from our audience. Uh, I'm sure they're very grateful for the answers that you've given them. I've I've also learned a lot. Um, our next segment is called uh, the open mic, where for a few minutes I let you have a mini tech talk about whatever you want that could be related to a topic, perhaps something that you feel hasn't been addressed yet that you wanted to mention, or um, it could be maybe laterally related or pa parallel to the topic, but you felt was important to mention. Did you have something in mind at the moment? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to think about our autobiographical memories, the, the way in which we structure our life narratives and to recognize that a, an important part of our um, existence really is making sense of our making sense of our lives creating uh, the narrative that um, we uh, resonate with and so spending some time 
uh, reflecting on one's life uh, narrative, thinking about the, the highlights, the lessons that we've learned, the, the periods, the particular periods that we've had and what those were like and what we learned and how we changed and how we developed and really reflecting on our uh, the, the story of our lives can be very, very powerful. One of the things that seems to be so important in life is, is the meaning that we find in it. And our, our life stories are filled with, uh, with all sorts of powerfully meaningful elements. It's each one of us has a hero's journey, right? And when we think about our lives in that sense, sort of understanding the, the challenges that we face and the ways in which we overcame them, and, and maybe discovering as we go through this uh, reminiscence and thinking about these experiences, maybe putting things together that we hadn't ever noticed before or, or recognizing patterns, uh, noticing that, oh, this is interesting. I've, I've, this, I, I'm noticing that I have the same pattern that's shown up again and again and again. So I, I would encourage your listeners um, of any age to, um, to, to, to recognize that reminiscence can be a very, very uh, powerful technique for uh, creating meaning uh, and for uh, understanding ourselves. Relatedly, um, I would invite, I did this uh, with my grandmother and I, I'm so glad that I did. I would invite people to uh, reach out to uh, their uh, older relatives. And if they're interested, the easy version of this is just to have a conversation, but consider actually videotaping it. Consider actually having, interviewing your grandmother, uh, asking her uh, about her life uh, as a child and, uh, and uh, what, what I, when, when I did this with my grandmother, I learned a tremendous amount and really it was a very, very uh, priceless experience uh, for me. And I think it was helpful for her as well. So I would uh, invite um, your listeners to uh, cultivate thinking about their own personal autobiographical life narratives, thinking that through, and then also uh, interviewing uh, the people that they love and consider even getting a videotape or just a recording of those stories uh, and, uh, and finding out all the richness that memory can provide. Yeah, for sure. I think that's such a beautiful way to connect with the older members of your family as well uh, in a way that probably you wouldn't be able to just with a normal conversation. And I also, I feel really validated by what you said about reminiscing because something for me is that I, you know, I've got a lot of mental health issues myself and I often find that I don't remember what happened during my day because if I've experienced very strong emotions, the emotion clouds the actual thing that happened, if that if that makes sense. Um, and if I'm feeling a particular way at a given time, I might forget how I was feeling three days ago. So something I've taken to doing is journaling and like recording what happened in my day to make sure that I actually remember it because I find that I don't after a few days. Yes, I did the same. I, I have to admit the pandemic um, 
did in my journaling. I just, my days were just not different enough to, um, to keep it up, but I actually kept a daily journal for, uh, for several years. And I do think that can be, uh, can be quite helpful, uh, to sort of make sense of your experience. And there's also some evidence that, uh, that journaling can be uh, good for mental health. The other thing that can be uh, very good uh, as a particular kind of journaling is gratitude. There's some really, really uh, outstanding research uh, indicating that just spending a few minutes every day journaling about the things that one's grateful for, uh, and they could be uh, things that you are grateful for about what happened that day uh, can be uh, uh, quite helpful. So adding a particular gratitude element to journaling uh, I would uh, highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to know uh, that I'm on the right track in that respect. Uh, but thank you. I've, I've had such a lovely conversation with you. I think we've got a bit over time, but I, I've really, really enjoyed learning from you today. It's been my pleasure. Where can our audience find you? So um, if uh, my website is a little bit um, long to, to say out, but if they just Google... Uh, Meta Lab, uh, UCSB, that's University of California, Santa Barbara. You can find that if they Google my name, Jonathan Schooler, they can find me there. And hopefully you can find a, you can put a, a posting to the Meta Lab website where you'll find uh, all the different areas of research that I've uh, mentioned and uh, a number of uh, podcasts and media interviews uh, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be sure to add all of that, all of those details in the show notes uh, so that um, our audience can access it as well. Uh, but once again, thank you so much. And I really, really appreciate your time here. Been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Self-Improvement Atlas, the personal science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can also be found on our website at pe.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti, thanks for tuning in.